Hi, and welcome to Deep Leadership. I'm your host, John Rennie. Today on the podcast, my guest is retired Navy SEAL Commander Jack Riggins. Jack and I talk about his unique experience in the military and how he's using that background to help people during this current COVID crisis. This is a great conversation with a lot of powerful takeaways. So, are you ready to dive in? Let's get started. Welcome to Deep Leadership. Leadership is a people business. That's the philosophy of your podcast host, John Rennie. As a former Cold War submarine officer who spent 20 plus years leading businesses in corporate America before starting his own manufacturing business, he knows that leadership matters. Leadership matters. Are you ready for some real world actionable advice from John as well as his expert guests? I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready. The show starts right now. Welcome to episode 15 of the Deep Leadership Podcast. Today I'm joined by Jack Riggins. Jack is a retired Navy SEAL commander and co founder of Performance Mountain, an organization that helps people, teams, and companies develop an elite mindset and a winning culture. He's also, also the host of Dark Side of Elite Podcast, which is one of my favorites. Jack knows what it means to lead in a crisis. And with everything going on today, I'm excited to talk to him and get his perspective. So, Jack, welcome. Yeah, thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. And uh, nice intro. I'm a fan <laughs> of what you do as well, because you're out there, uh, you know, teaching leadership from your experience and, um, and just spreading the word. And I think that I think that all leaders can grow. And so if we have unique experiences, it's important to be able to share them in a way that people can, you know, choose to take on board some of the things we've learned or or go, ah, eh, that doesn't quite work for me. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And especially now in times of, uh, you know, kind of a unique crisis hitting the, the, the country, hitting the world. Um, I've been, it's been interesting to me to talk to various leaders and especially military guys, because I think that um, you can bring an interesting perspective, especially with your background. And so that's kind of what I want to start off with was, um, you know, maybe tell me a little bit about your background in the Navy and then how it shaped what you do and what you teach at Performance Mountain. So that's kind of a unique, you're taking your experiences and bringing it to training other leaders and other teams. So I'm interested in hearing about that. Yeah, I'll, um, I'll try not to uh, go, you know, waste the entire podcast time with <laughs> my background, but um, I grew up in Nebraska. Um, small town of 25,000 for Nebraska. Well, in Nebraska, that's actually not a small town. Um, and I went in and I played uh, small college football for two years. I was really a, a big sports guy. Um, I always like to tell people, you know, I really went to school to do sports. Um, at the same time, I kind of come from um, a military family, you know, I had family in World War II, Korea, Vietnam, the father that raised me, my third stepfather, um, had just got out after Vietnam, uh, when he married my mother. And he, so he was very influential in my life. He was both a Marine and, and an air force man. Um, but I wasn't uh, raised a military brat. Um, so I just kind of had that, I think in and around my brother also flew helicopters for the army. Um, and he's ooh, maybe 10, 11 years older than me. You know, I had this interesting family. Um, and so I just, you know, I had that spark. And so I, I knew I wanted to serve early, and to be honest, um, I think with my sports background and besides, you know, wanting to serve, um, you know, I was looking for the next locker room, kind of a place where mm. a group of people got together and, and would accomplish something. And, you know, I know that some of the recruiting 
um, like, ooh, SEAL team yeah. <laughs> uh, attracted me. But I also think it was just my rebellious nature that um, we had very few people um, that had been in the Navy in my family. And being from Nebraska, it was intriguing, you know? <laughs> remember, remember the old posters, Navy, see the world. Um, right, right. And of course, there was some attraction to SEAL team is so hard to get into, blah, blah, blah. Um, so I played two years of football and then kind of trap, you know, what love the football didn't really take the school very serious. And I was like, I don't know if this is going to end up good, you know, in my early twenties. Um, so I found the closest ROTC unit, Navy ROTC was at the university of Nebraska. And that's where I, I went down and literally walked on, um, uh, just kind of walked in the door and, and said, Hey, where do I sign up? And, um, did it and, and did end ROTC and that was great. And the Marines in the program at the time, some of the MESEP or Marines that were, uh, trying to become, you know, Marine officers, you know, taught me how to wear my uniform in March. Um, I still, you know, although I'm retired now, I always needed help trying to figure out how to do all that stuff. So, <laughs> so it's good. I went into SEAL team. Um, but yeah, the goal from day one was, uh, to become a SEAL officer and, uh, graduated from the university of Nebraska where I met my wife, which was cool. And she was like, yeah, what's that? What, what are you talking about? And, you know, when we graduated, uh, we were in the car on the way to San Diego to uh, BUDS or Basic Underwater Demolition SEAL School in 1998. And, um, you know, I, she still didn't know what she was getting into, and I don't think I did either. Um, but I went through that, and, you know, it's it's a fantastic experience or selection that's, you know, there's plenty of information out there. It's, it's, it's a very difficult selection. Um, but I also say I don't know that it's that difficult if you are that laser-focused and you need to be that laser focused for that, you know, eight months to a year, um, to become a SEAL or a mm -hmm. SEAL officer. So, and, and, and that was kind of the genesis is to find that next team and, and, and do something good with my life. Um, not that I wasn't doing things good, but I was very rebellious and rambunctious and getting in a lot of trouble. And so for me, um, it was just a great mesh and, um, ended up, you know, obviously in SEAL team, few years before 9-11, um, started at SEAL Team 1. All, all, maybe only SEALs will get this, but uh, SEAL Team 1 was kind of known as, as one of the, well, it was one of the, it, SEAL Team 1 and 2 were the original SEAL teams in 1962, and there was a lot of pride with that. But they were also very, uh, we used to call it uh, Stalag 1. Um, mm, they, okay. they, they had a reputation for not being very fun, you know, ah, no fun okay. one. Okay. Not to say they're not today. But uh, anyway, uh, in your selection of, you know, hopefully where you wanted to go, you know, this boat, that boat, you know, SEAL Team's the same thing. I had originally had orders to SEAL Team 3. Um, and then I was like, no, you know, I, I want to go old school. <laughs> and, uh, well, I, I did. I got my you orders. You got old team. school. <laughs> yeah, and I went to SEAL Team 1. And, and, and that grooming period for a young officer, those kind of first two years after BUDS, what was an eye-opener because I kind of thought like a football team, wow, you make it and you're on the team and, you know, and you get a play. Uh, no, you, you, you have the basic materials to be a SEAL and a SEAL officer, and there is a lot of grooming and mentoring and training that needs to go on before you're competent. It's just, it's just the, you're, you've got the basic competency right, to, right. Get to, to get to the SEAL teams. Like we, we had the base, like we got through nuke power school and, and prototype and submarine school, which was a year and a half. Then we had the 
minimum requirements to step on board, but we didn't know what we were doing at that time. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. exactly. So I had no clue what I was doing, but what I will say is that the teams are not structured this way anymore. Uh, generally one master chief at a team now uh, might be another one in waiting, but you know, I think we had five to seven at team one at the time. And some of them were tail end Vietnam guys. And I would every day going in to the team, I was, I was like, Oh God, like I'm going to be fired. I'm going home. You know, I had no idea what was going to happen, but again, mentorship. And as I got into my first platoon, I really cherish that time now because I was taught by, you know, LPOs, E6s, you know, because our guys do a really good job. And I think the Navy in general does in, in grooming the young officers. I mean, the officers have to groom each other, but the enlisted and certainly the chief petty officers, you know, that is their job. Mm-hmm. And, and, and while I didn't understand it at the time, you know, and it was difficult. I, a couple years later, I was so thankful for it because they made me competent and they made me understand, you know, moral and ethical and technical and tactical decisions at a much higher level than I think some other places, you know, in the community. Um, and it was great. And I would go on to, you know, some of them would become very good friends. And as you know, as you gain rank in the military, some of them would quote unquote work for me. Right. Um, right. So, you know, so it was an interesting time, but what people don't know also is that SEAL team was undergoing a transformation. Um, that just happened to coincide with nine 11 where, right. you know, a lot of us were just out on, uh, args and margs with, uh, you know, floating in the Pacific with Marines and, you know, going to forward bases and, and training a lot of people. But, um, you know, what was the future defense posture? And so we decided to do what was called force 21 and reorganize into almost squadron level, um, fighting forces and why um, under the Navy special warfare umbrella, you know, you have seals and you had small boats and, mm-hmm. and that was it. Um, and Admiral McRaven retired, but at the time Commodore, you know, kind of uh, led that. And so there was this transition going on and, you know, I was in kind of the new guy group, you know, two or three years where we were kind of getting the old school way. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, all of this was supposed to happen in 2001, literally. Mm. (laughs) Um, And it was just, it was interesting. And and people were talking about things that hadn't even come online yet, you know, aircraft, you know, not that we weren't qualified. I mean, I was a JTAC calling in airstrikes, but, you know, the squadron almost being, you know, a war fighting unit and, and bringing attachments into SEAL team squadron to deploy opposed to where, you know, if on a submarine you had a special operations mission that needed some guys, you know, we would come out to you and we'd work together. Well, you know, the, the, the foreseeable future was we may have to take the unit and, and fight it, you know, mm. just like fight a ship. It's a very Navy type thing. Long story short, I deploy to the Pacific, uh, 9-11 happens. And, you know, right then and there, you know, immediately the world goes nuts and, uh, all kinds of contingency operations, you know, immediately begin around the world. And, you know, we kind of go from, I'll call it, you know, play land. Oh, there's nothing going on. Cause there's nothing worse than SEAL team than training, 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 right, and right. then not actually getting to do something. And so, 
you know, participate basically from right after 9-11 until I redeploy in December in a bunch of contingency operations, which are great because you get to see the big picture of how the national architecture is moving chess pieces around the board. And that's actually uh, when I was introduced to submarine operations. Mm. And um, like I said, if one of the benefits of SEAL Team is that for the most part, if you do it long enough, you're going to see probably every asset the United States has. Right, um, right. And there's just nothing like seeing a submarine in clear water in the day, <laughs> you being like looking down at it. And there's nothing better than at night either. Although the little escape trunk is, you're like, Oh God, I got to swim down to that. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and we weren't at a point in time right after nine 11 where um, we came off the normal deployment cycle, like everybody else in the Navy, it was just like, we'll redeploy. We'll put a force forward. We'll go through rest and refit. Boom, boom, boom. Um, so later, um, I would go on after that because of the, uh, squadron reorganization and everything, we didn't have a home. And so I ended up spending the next tour cause we did disassociated tours to mature, um, at special operations command Korea, which sounds so weird to people. And it was actually a great tour. I had my first son there, but at the, at that time, um, the entire mission set was uh, the nuclear program of North Korea and the North Korean leadership. So um, there wasn't too many frogmen there. Um, So I got a high level, I call it high level behind the scenes access to secret compartmented programs going on nationally. Um, And I was very junior. And again, this is where for me, I met a lot of my green counterparts in the U S army and, um, and, you know, learned what they did and, and learned the bigger picture um, of what would become really the counterterrorism architecture mm. of America, although it wasn't in the full swing yet, um, like it is today. Um, and so really though, for a seal, you know, that was kind of a down tour, but it was very broadening, gave me a giant strategic picture. I, I always had a lot of pride when I, I was one of three guys that could go pick up, you know, you would love this, right? I could go pick up the messages. Remember the days where, you know, everything still works on message traffic, especially the Navy. But, you know, this is the time where you had to go through like three skiffs and locked doors to get a message that came from Washington or the Pentagon. Right. Yeah. And I think people find that fascinating. I know in, in submarine, that's just SOP. You know, well, in fact, I have a whole, I've got a bit of a chapter on that in my new book about uh, just breaking and, and decoding messages was uh, right. part of what we did. So, and, uh, and it was a, it was a story about me as a, as a young Lieutenant JG thinking I knew what I was talking about because I'd just been to the class in the school and I, and I sort of questioned my CO, which wasn't a good idea. So yeah, <laughs> so I include that story in the book because it's a, uh, it's one of those stories where you think you know everything as a young junior officer and you realize right away when you're dealing with an 06 that he knows a lot more than you do. So, yeah. Yeah. So it was real interesting. Absolutely. It was, it's so funny because, yeah, I mean, when you're young, it's just the fact you're young and and you're you're driving hard to, to be somebody in any organization. But, yeah, you always think you have all the answers. And I, right, I right. was one of those guys. Uh, I still probably am. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it was another great tour. Um because again, strategic level, and you don't always get to see that. It just depends where you're at and what you do. Um, it also broadened my horizons to the um, the joint special operations world, which is really cool and and really 
you, you know, you have to begin to understand that and speak that language. So, you know, you had the air component there from the air force, you had the army aviation component, you know, you had the, uh, green beanies and, and you, you had the command architecture. So I worked for a general. And like I said, I used to, I used to get so excited, uh, because I could read the message and I had to decide if it was at the level that, you know, I had to call ops and he had to call the general and you don't want to mess up that you don't no, want to mess no, up. You no. know, and it's, you're like, Oh no, like, okay. You know, wake up, honey, you know, on the beeper. Okay. Now I got to take it to the command and go in the skiff there. And it's like, uh, I, and really I would just deliver the information, but I would watch the more senior officers deliberate of what was the right decision. Does he need to be woke up? Does he not? All I learned from that is if in doubt, wake him up. <laughs> right. No, that's exactly right. Yeah. That's, right? that's the way we, we were trained too. Yeah. yeah. When in doubt, wake him up. He's going to yell at you, but you know, all right. Yes. You know, it's the right thing to do. Like, yes, absolutely. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, left there. And what was also neat was because of in SEAL team, the squadron um, form up and this new way of doing business, a lot of guys in my peer group did the same thing. It's like we did our first tours. Yes, 9-11 happened, but then everybody, because, you know, nobody knew if this was going to be a long war yet. So we were still on cycle. And so a lot of my peers were on disassociated tours. And in that nature, we would come across each other or work as you and I are, you know, on VTCs and coordinate things. And so it was great. So, you know, got done with that. And then I ended up back to SEAL Team 3, you know, Lieutenant, you know, I was Lieutenant Riggins in Korea. And now I'm Lieutenant Riggins and, you know, get kind of what they call the creme de la creme and SEAL Team, your first little, little company commander, platoon commander for us. Um, I think division head probably is mm-hmm. equivalent yep. on a boat, but, uh, you know, for us at the time, I mean, that's what all the officers were gunning for, you know, guys were always going to stay in seal team for the most part, you know, to do that job. And then after that job, you, you might start to see some attrition, maybe not, you know, just, but everybody was gunning for that. And so I was really excited because seal team three had been, you know, if you go back to originally, I had orders there, but then I went to one. Well, SEAL Team 3 at the time, we were regionally organized through the 90s, and they were the Middle East team from the mm. West Coast. And so they were really the only guys that were doing something that we considered cool. <laughs> right. Nonetheless, it was, you know, everybody was pulling their weight. But I was excited. And obviously, at this point, I had spent two years, you know, there was Afghanistan, now Iraq had kicked off. And so, you know, I was excited to be at that team because they just seemed to have, and this may sound terrible, but they just seemed to have the lucky timing of always being involved in very, again, cool, lots of operations for SEAL team. Because as you know, you can deploy and it's it's a downtime and, and you're not doing yeah, a lot. Yeah. There's other people don't understand that people don't understand that. Um, you know, I talk about that. Um, when you train to be, to, to, to get to do your job, you want to do your job, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's fun to train. It's fun to, 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 you know, to get ready, but you really want to do your duty, right? You want to actually do it. And I remember during the first Gulf war, uh, one of the first submarines got a chance to fire uh, missiles in in the first Gulf war and, and us as submarine community was the first time a submarine had been used in a warfare situation since, you know, since World War II. And, uh, and we were all just like, how do I get to that command? How do I, I want to be there. I want to be a part of that. Yeah. 
you train for it and you want to do it. You want to, you want to do the mission. So yeah. kind of interesting you say that because I also always felt that way too. We were all jealous that we weren't the boat that got selected for that mission, right? So, And yeah. you, you're exactly right. Like you yeah. feel jealousy or like, yeah. oh, and then you're, you're, you're combing through the AARs and the hot washes yeah. to, yeah. to, to, yeah. to, to pass the lessons learned, right. which is another great leadership tip, which I see and we do a lot better in the military than some of the counterparts out here where they can learn is that we just, we rake each other through the coals right. on those uh, debriefs immediately. And in SEAL team, they were happening as missions were still happening because of the network now that we have, you know, architecture wise, you could almost be getting feedback live. And the reason is, is because somebody may be going out the door on another part of the world and, you know, you don't want to have, whether it's a gear, critical gear mistake or, or tactic mistake. And so we're, we're always learning real time. And, but that's where it comes from is that, Oh man, those guys got to launch this and and very much the same in steel team. Um, yeah, it's so funny. You know, the best way I explain it, I came up to for my mother because my mother just, she's like, she, (laughs) she, she's just, she's just convinced, right. That like, I don't know, I'm going to die. God, God bless her soul. She's still alive. Anyway, I said, Mom, when you see the fire trucks going to a fire, do you stop and panic? And she's like, Well, no, it's their job. They're good at it. And I'm like, Right. Well, that's what my whole background is as well. Right. Right. We're good at it. You shouldn't think any different when we, you know, launch off to a deployment. I mean, we're just doing our, our job and we really do want to do it. Right. Um, so, uh, so SEAL Team Three is is where I cut my teeth and spent a lot of time there. Two 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 cycles, a little bit of the surge, and again, I was just blessed as a platoon commander to have a phenomenal platoon chief and LPO and junior officers. Now that you know, I was really you know somewhat capable of mentoring um, in this, and a lot of great guys. And I just remember that the team, you know, Jocko was there, you know, that was kind of that time frame. Um, and we just really, there was a lot of great things that went on. There was tragedy and some deaths and injuries. Um, but I just remember that we all grew together and I really appreciated, you know, that rotation time, um, as a platoon commander, even though things weren't perfect, you know, there was a real sense of we were all together and the squadrons that I had mentioned before were kind of solidified and, you know, they'd gone from experimental and trouble shot to, okay, I've got, I've got a good product here, a good boat. I can trust the boat. Mm. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and, and that really helped SEAL team. And, and so we went off there and again, you know, got guys rotate in, you know, you have new guys coming in. And I, and I really appreciated it and I learned, but at the same time, I was starting to get pretty banged up and injured, just training type stuff. And so I was dealing with a lot of that and it was frustrating because it's kind of like, man, I got to my Super Bowl and, you know, my knees blown out or whatever. Yeah, yeah. no, no, I know. Yeah. And so, so I fought real hard with medical and stuff to try to, you know, make sure I stayed there and I did. And later that would, you know, kind of cause this cascading thing where now I, I tell the young guys, you know, there is a smarter way in a physically, if you have to be in a physically dominated career, you know, to handle these things. And, and I didn't handle them well at all. I mean, policies were different and, you know, opioids were 
certainly probably people knew they were a crisis, but in a unit like ours, they were easy to get. And so it was very common for us to be carrying packs of pills because we were all beat up and we wanted mm-hmm. to do our duty. Um, and that's going to have lasting effects on some personalities. Um, but nonetheless, you know, gritted through it, still have lifelong relationships. I think we did our job well. Um, you know, some of it has been publicized. Some of it has been made into movies and, and that's okay. That, you know, that's good. All, I, I just can't cherish that. I went on to uh, get a battlefield promotion and uh, turn around and um, do what then we call troop commander. Um, and later then I would take, you know, 300 man force to Iraq um, back later in that career in, in the Ramadi area. Thanks for listening to Deep Leadership. We'll be right back after a brief intermission. Hey, leaders. If you're anything like me, you drink coffee to power through your morning. But what about in the afternoon? For me, I start getting a little sleepy and unfocused around 2 p.m. So I like to do something to get me recharged and refocused. I've tried a bunch of different energy drinks. I've even tried that stuff that's supposed to last five hours. Most are expensive and cause you to crash later in the afternoon. I was introduced to a, a really good product by a fellow veteran. He told me to try Strike Force Energy. Strike Force is a veteran-owned company founded by a Navy SEAL, and their products are all made in the USA. Strike Force Energy is a liquid flavor pack that you can add to any beverage. It has zero calories, zero carbs, and zero sugar. Each pack contains 80 milligrams of caffeine. I actually add two packs and a liter of water in the afternoon. I get my water, my energy, and the great taste of Strike Force throughout the afternoon. I personally prefer the original flavor. Strike Force Energy is offering a discount to all the listeners of Deep Leadership. Go to strikeforceenergy.com and enter the discount code I have the watch, one word, I have the watch for a 20% discount on your order. Strike Force Energy, fuel for your fight. We were in the phase of trying to figure out how to turn everything over to the Iraqis. Um, but what I did enjoy again was, you know, as you get more senior, you know, more personalities, you understand the game, you know, you should be extremely competent in your tactics and techniques and understanding the left and right limits of, you know, the ethics and morality of warfare and and the ever changing rules of engagement. Um, and, you know, so I felt pretty competent, Um, But again, I was able to seek out other folks as you can put your teams together that mesh. And I think that's important because there are things I'm good at and there are things I'm not Mm -hmm. good at leadership wise. And so I would always find whether it be other officers or warrant officers or senior enlisted that, you know, could balance me as the quote unquote commander Mm -hmm. of, of that troop. And, and that was very valuable and it, and it really solidified, you know, that I think sometimes, you know, it takes a team of leaders, you know, we have the triad built in, um, but, you know, broadening that and, and really listening to the best advice, you know, this would be the point in my career where I start to see and be in charge of a lot of Mm. non-seals, support people almost at a eight to one ratio, you know, to go out and, and, and do an objective, you know, you had so many more people working behind the scenes. Um, and then they're plugged into the national intelligence architecture and you're doing multi-agency stuff. Um, and it was great, but we, at that point in time, you know, really, uh, 
we protected some of the uh, very important uh, shakes. Oh, right. And, okay. And we would, yeah, we would hit targets. You know, the Ambar Awakening had already happened, but obviously, um, you know, in, in, in keeping the peace, as I like to say it, was just an interesting dynamic. And, mm. uh, mm-hmm. and so I got a really good, uh, you know, on-the-job training of uh, Sunni Arab culture, um, and it was good. And, and again, I think we did our job well. Um, we got out of there. I've always been proud that I accomplished my missions and uh, kept my people safe. That's something you don't always get to choose um, and handled it. And, you know, at that point, then we started something new. It's probably two years, but uh, they call it Special Reconnaissance Team One now. Um, but we saw the advantage of uh, bringing a lot of intel from multidisciplines all across the Navy, some joint interagency, and, and somebody smarter than me got that approved to be inside the SEAL architecture of Navy Special Warfare. Um, and it had some SEALs, had a lot more what we call uh, combat support across the interagency. Um, a lot of guys that you're familiar with, with cryptologists and things mm-hmm. like that. And uh, But they didn't have, you know, there was, it, it, we just didn't have enough people because we wanted to be SEAL-led. And so I really fought. Um, I wasn't supposed to go there, but I, I fought to get there um, because I found it very interesting. I knew how needed it was. Everybody argues about, you know, does ops drive Intel or Intel drive ops? Mm. You know, unless you're invading a place, you know, maybe for the first two days, if you go, you know, ops is driving Intel. But other than that, Intel is very important and it's sure. good, to, good to have the best. So, um, so I became the operations officer there and, and that was world war su- worldwide support operations um, to national missions, you know, all the way down to local squadron missions. And so it was a very exciting time because we had a lot of money. It was new UAVs, um, all kinds of super secret stuff. Um, again, plugged into the national architecture and, and I loved it. And simultaneously, I was pretty much physically done beat up. There was Mm. not much, honestly, I could do. I was already, I don't know, on my fifth or sixth surgery. And so I felt it was a way I could just still take my experience and try to merge the disciplines of SEAL operator, you know, direct action type units and intelligence because they don't always get along. People think, oh, we get along. Like those are two different beasts. And, uh, And this coordination and collaboration has to occur right? For it to work. Uh, just the same as, you know, drop your ego when you come on the boat and they've mm. got their way and the skipper and the culture. And that can be different from ship to ship, but I'm sure yep. submarine to submarine. But again, you know, we're all there to support each other. And so we had to work through those things. And again, uh, that's where I met Sean Hughes, you know, uh, an intelligence officer, and he was just lights out, you know, some of these people are so smart. So I really started to um, enjoy that part of the discipline because I was starting to realize that, you know, as I became a more senior SEAL officer, you know, the operating days were for the most part done. And, you know, I needed to really get good at the bigger picture. Mm. Uh, And from there, you know, I I went to Leavenworth, you know, again, Command General Staff College, got my master's at Kansas in a a SOCOM program that was all about interagency collaboration. And people ask me, well, why? And I say, well, it started with 9-11 because the big lesson learned was we didn't all know how to talk to each other. Yes. Yeah. And, yeah. and so 
between the CIA and other agencies and SOCOM, they put together this cohort. And it was really great because we were able to go there. There's 20 of us in a hodgepodge of that joint force and, you know, get our education. But part of it was classified. So we were able to study real world things um, to come up with better solutions in interagency collaboration and then feed it back out to the forces. Mm. And, and then from there, you know, I went out, I went out to Guam as the deputy um, and I'd been through Guam before. So I knew it wasn't that scary of a, of a place. Um, I've always enjoyed the Pacific. And uh, of course, a couple of submarines were parked right next to my uh, <laughs> window yeah. on the pier there. Yeah. And, uh, you know, just continued to uh, support SEAL squadrons as they came in and, and, and worked the whole Pacific theater. And then finally, I ended up uh, in the uh, counterterrorism for Europe with Special Operations Command Europe. And that's when, uh, well, as I like to say, we got behind the curve of ISIS, but then we decided, oh, maybe we should do something. And so the way the uh, ge- geographic boundaries are, we had uh, Turkey was in UCOM's AOR. Obviously, uh, you had AFRICOM there but work in that. And then you had central command work in the middle East. And so, you know, basically the, let's get back into the game, you know, kind of started up and, you know, I was on the planning and, and staff of all of that. And that was kind of the last thing that I did as you know, the thing I will leave service operationally strategic wise is that probably the last thing I did that, well, I would hope would have helped meaning I and the group and the whole team of Sakure was, you know, we traveled around to countries along with NATO and in America was really trying to educate the rest of the world about foreign fighter flow. Mm. And the fact that, you know, people were taking passports and just traveling freely to a war zone and then coming back into places like France and we know what happened. And, you know, I, Europe was very slow to believe in that. Um, and it was kind of sad because we had all the intelligence and and we would share it. Um, but you can't tell another country what to do. You can coordinate with your counterparts. Um, they can see it like we can see it, but in the end of the day, everybody wanted to kind of say, well, you know, if our citizens leave and go to a war zone and commit crimes over there, that's, that's that country's problem. And they're free to come back here. And it's like, uh, yeah. So, Really, uh, the world was rejocking again in the, you know, in kind of the big NATO community, big, um, real, you know, counterterrorism nations um, of how to deal with that. And then, you know, Russia invaded uh, post-Olympics. Help me out. I'm having a blank. Russia took over Crimea. 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 Yeah. Yeah. So they, they did Crimea. And then they did Ukraine. And, Ukraine, yeah. Yeah. And then at that time, you know, I was pretty much overcome by injury and bad choices of addiction to the opioids, and I just needed to get fixed. And so I'm always very thankful that the Admiral, um, not only the SEAL Admiral, but Admiral McRaven, had a SOCOM. Um, you know, what they did is they, they sent me to home a record and let me get my surgeries, and then I retired. Okay. And, uh, and I really feel like it was a great handshake. I felt when I was done at 20 years that, um, I, I did what they asked of me and I did to the best of my ability. And I felt that, um, not only the Navy SEAL team, but the country held up its end of the bargain. And I ended up uh, retiring in 2018 
with a lot of information, a lot of friendships, a lot of lessons, uh, my family intact. And, uh, which and is, I'd love to go do it over again, yeah, um, which is I'd unusual. Love, yeah. And in Navy, right. yeah, there's a lot of divorce in Navy. And, uh, so uh, being able to keep your family intact is a big, uh, big plus. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I kind of did the gambit, which is, I think pretty typical. I mean, as I like to say, you know, I'm just kind of very average seal officer and, um, had some unique struggles to myself, but there's unique struggles and, uh, you know, moving forward, um, you know, my new passion as I, I, even while I was on active duty, I got introduced to some sports teams and, mm-hmm. I, you know, kind of I, as starting out as a sports guy, that was neat. And I've, I found some goodness on both sides from them, you know, learning things and, and me and realizing that demographic is young kids, you know, 18 to 22. It's, it's what we deal with a lot in the military. Right. Um, and so I thought, wow, that, that might be a way I can pass on uh, knowledge and, and help young people achieve what they want. And, and, even, even middle-aged people. And then from there, you know, it's like, well, you know, businesses may enjoy some of this stuff too. And, uh, and so, you know, got my partner who's a, in, in performance mountain, who's a sports psychiatrist, uh, he's really great at his craft. Um, those are people that seals and I think just military people in general probably wouldn't associate with. Um, but you have to meet each individual. It's just kind of like every seal isn't some superhero. I mean, we're just people and, and, you know, we, we work really hard at what we do, but you've got to get to know the person and, and we found some synergy there. Um, and so that's been rewarding, but I look at my mission now going forward where I completely believe that there's times that you need to, you know, bombs and bullets and that need, need to be there to stop evil and they can change things. And, and it is needed. You need that protection from rogue elements and, and evil people. There's just evil in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the same time, you know, I don't do that anymore. And it's like, well, what can I do? And I was like, you know, um, I just, I try to change one person at a time, change the world mm. one person at a time so that hopefully there's not as much evil, you know, whenever I get off this planet. Um, and I, and I try to do that by being very authentic and sharing my story, not just what I've learned in SEAL team and, and my own education through life, but with my family, with mm. sports and with business. And then my struggles too, because as we talked about, I think that it, there's not, for lack of a better term, I think that there's a lot of people that don't see the, the value in, you know, if you need help or, or you have issues, especially in the male culture to go get it. Mm. And and I think we did a phenomenal job in the military, better than the generations before, but I still think there's a lot of gaps and I think it hurts readiness. I think it hurts uh, morale. I think we lose good people um, to some of these things and that's okay. I mean, I'm very satisfied that the force my grandpa was a part of way back in the day, you know, made it better militarily country mm-hmm. for us than the next generation, the next. And, and I felt like, in my time where I saw Naval Special Warfare grow to, where I saw the Navy and the country, I, I felt like we pushed the rock down the road and made it better. Could it? Could, could there be tons of other things? Of course, but that's for the next crew to do. Yeah, and the I'm next here. generation will be better, even better. Yeah, right? absolutely. Yeah. And they yeah. are being better because mm. there's so many other tools. And, but what I can provide, you know, if, if they ask without prying into them is just, you know, experience and and, and what, what I learned and hopefully to help them learn quicker, faster and accomplish their goals. And so I just try to do it on three fronts, right? If the military, if, if it's that audience, 
business and then sports. Um, and you hit a pretty good demographic and, and also women. I mean, I, right in the middle of SEAL team, I got to help a women's volleyball team here in Nebraska. Mm. And that, that was epic. I mean, my wife was a player, um, and I have two daughters, but generally, you know, SEALs is a male dominated culture, although now we've integrated and, and mm-hmm. I had a lot of females I took to combat with me. Um, and our team at, at team three, they're really, like I said, I mean, team three was epic. Love it. You know, just mm. talked to a guy yesterday, um, you know, talking about, you know, what everybody's doing right now and, and things like that. So there's just a lot of great lessons. Um, I don't think they're exclusive, like because I was a SEAL, it's just the way it is. Um, but it's certainly unique. And I realize it gives me a platform that, um, people sometimes open their ears to where they might not have to somebody else. And, and so I feel like I have a responsibility, um, to try to do it right and, and to pass it on. So that's kind of, that's my career in a nutshell, even though that was 35 minutes. <laughs> I love it. You know, it's funny. I, I wrote a bunch of questions, but I know you because I listened to your podcast and I was like, I probably just need one question and uh, let, and, and just let yeah. you go. So I, I, I love it. I, you know, I, like I said, because I follow your podcast, I, I think I know your story in uh, a little bit, but I think this is really helpful to understand, you know, your whole background and what, I don't know, uh, what, what you've been through and how it creates what you want to do going forward. And I think your idea of passing it on to the next group is something, the reason why I write about leadership, the why, why I do these podcasts is I really want to try to create a world with better leaders and try to pass on, you know, the, the experiences I had in the military and in 22 years in corporate America to, to others so they can be better leaders when they get that opportunity. Yeah. So, um, well, and that makes the world a better place. I mean, you just try to impact it where you can. Right, exactly. And so, like you said, and I like what you said, you said one person at a time and, uh, and try, to, try, try to make that next uh, generation, that next group. So maybe they learn some of the lessons without having to go through the hardships that you had to go through, you know. Uh, exactly. Like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, oh God, with my young, especially my young officers, you know, when I was more senior, like, you know, they were yoga, they were doing this. And, and I just, I talked to them about the different, you know, first I would give them the history that I understood of the teams kind of prior to me and then, you know, my generation. And I would say, you know, don't worry about guys giving you crap about that. Like you need to stay healthy. You right. know, I'm an example of, I did it wrong. Would I change it? No. Cause it's made me who I am. But if it started over again and I had this knowledge, you're doing the right things. Um, and so, you know, creating that culture that it's, you know, again, like it isn't national security, but I want you to tell me and I want you to, you know, tell the old man, the skipper, because we have the experience to help you work through it. Right. 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 No matter what it is, right. To, to get to that trust level, excuse me. Um, but that's what I learned. I mean, really what I learned was it's all about people. Mm. And, you know, I, I, I know what the paperwork says, you know, quote unquote, commander Jack Riggins did, um, I, so does everybody in the military. We all have those fitness reports and things and, you know, but in the end of the day, you know, I just did my job. I, I feel very average. Um, but that, that was good enough. I mean, I did the standard, but more importantly, it wasn't, it was because of the people that grew me. Yes. I had the drive and the clay and I was just, just, just barely smart enough mm. to listen. And maybe if I don't go to SEAL team one and have that very kind of in your face, experience, which, you know, is kind of going away these days and that's okay. But I needed that to kind of shock me into, um, 
really understanding that I don't know everything and I might think I'm cool. Um, but if I want to do this career and do it right, I have to listen. I have to seek out people that know things I don't know. I have to understand my strengths. I have to work on my weaknesses. I have to constantly improve. And after a while, it just became kind of my new way. Um, but, you know, I am who I am on all fronts in, in the military because of all, again, mostly the senior enlisted and, and certainly warrant officers and some officers um, and not just SEALs. I mean, Marines, um, right, right. you know, Green Berets, Air Force people. Um, I'm just thankful. I'm very thankful because um, it's made me who I am. And I, again, I, I want to pass it on. And then, you know, because of my own unique choices with addiction and, you know, abuse as a child. Well, hey, let's just add that in there, too, because that's part of it. And I know that there's got to be lots of people that struggle with that as well. Mm. You know, so, yeah, it yeah, love it. And, you know, my family, like you said, I mean, I can't say that enough. They're always like, don't talk about us on the podcast. <laughs> I'm like, my God, you're my family. But right, you know, they're, right. yeah. they're, uh, we know how rare that is to make it through a career like that. Um, and, you know, my wife from start to finish, I mean, I can remember being in Hell Week and uh, doing Rock Portage. And back then they used to let civilian, well, you can see that because it's at Hotel Del Coronado. But, you know, like I'm coming out of the water, you know, and like my wife is standing there with girlfriends like, how high? Oh, like, really? <laughs> right. Like, oh, my God, I'm going to get kicked out. Right, so, right. Yeah, oh, that's neat. Well, I, um, before we leave, t- talk a little bit about what you're doing on your podcast and with your crew, the Dark Side of Elite crew, uh, in the middle of this uh, coronavirus, uh, uh, you know, what you're doing and trying to do to try to help people. And I really appreciate what you're doing because, I mean, I think you have a lot of experience in crisis leadership and crisis management and, and being in these uh, tough environments. And I think you're trying to pass it on to, I mean, the rest of the country is probably the first time ever they're way outside their comfort zone. So maybe tell, talk a little yeah. bit about what you're doing with that and then we'll wrap up. So I don't get in trouble with uh, Greta. So yeah, for sure. <laughs> we, we, we don't want that. Um, so yeah, dark side elite podcast, you know, it's just kind of unfiltered access to my life and my thoughts, um, and my guests. Um, and we just hit all subjects, but what's interesting is, so we were switching over to, um, a pay model, um, for part of it with deeper content, you know, if you want. Mm. Um, and, and we were literally ready to go hot with that um, when this happened. And I was like, oh, God, no. Like, yeah, I, yeah. I, I don't want to do that. Um, I just, it just didn't feel right to go out. And, you know, so, so part of that vision was, you know, that site was going to be the crew. Right. And you could sign up. And like I said, there's different levels and I'm not marketing. I'm just, this is what happened, but that will be there one day in the future when this all ends and we get back to normal. And so we were talking and I said, you know, and we have all these podcasts with great people, but it's not COVID because we taped before. Right. 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 And, and I was like, you know, we should just start the Facebook page, you know, so dark side of the elite crew on Facebook, you just go to it and we accept you. And, basically create a community forum that right now is just focused on what's going on with COVID. How are we dealing with it? You know, let's not talk politics. Let's not get too crazy on those things, but just what are we struggling with as people and what's going good? Mm. Because my experience tells me 
that, like you said, a lot of people, this is the first time kind of out of their battle rhythm on a mass scale. I mean, mm, yeah. individually, but on a mass scale. And as right. each day has gone on and each week has gone on, those of us like you and I who have been in situations where we're just kind of out there, um, we probably have a lot more resiliency to these things. Mm. But we all know that at some point we hit our point too, where we're like, oh, I mean, that's why we rotate in the military. Right, exactly. Right? Yeah, yeah. And I said, geez, you know, I don't, because at first I kind of giggled about COVID. I was like, oh God. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> I, I wasn't paying attention. And then I really uh, I started to, you know, some other people hit me up and they're like, Hey Jack. And I was like, well, I'm just, you know, I'm being me. I'm being funny. Right. But I, you know, we need to do the right things. And then I was like, ah, no, you know, so we created that group again, just to spread the basic knowledge of where we're at. I mean, we are in stop the spread as right. a society, as a world. Um, and so get that basic information out and just keep regurgitating it. But at the same time, you know, whoever wants to join, you know, create that environment where, hey, what's going on in your life? Because if you are listening to the Dark Side of Elite podcast, you know that's exactly what we do. We just kind of, I mean, we will have national people. We will have local people. Uh, you may catch me talking about my wife and kids and my struggles there, or, or God knows what, mm. uh, because that's real life. Right. And so now real life is going to be hyperdrive because we can't go anywhere. The things that are little and bother us at the house are going to bother us more frequently in things. And this is unprecedented now. Really I is, mean, as each yeah. day has gone on, it's unprecedented for our society and the world. And so, you know, I know that I'm a pretty open guy. My producer, Scott, is open and, and a nice guy, but he's, he's different than me. And so we just said, said, hey, let's just start it and start inviting people and start spreading the word. And everything, while COVID is COVID, is going to be geared towards talking about that on the pod, finding experts, and and really just to basically tell everybody you're not alone. Mm, that's like great. we're here. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And <clears throat> and wherever you want to go with it, we'll go with it. I think uh Sunday we're gonna attempt, we're just gonna attempt uh, a live, just I'll probably turn on the camera and be here. Uh, yeah. And in whatever questions. I mean, because I think that when you talk about crisis management at, at the big level or even the individual level, the number one thing, right, is always, always try to stay calm, right? Mm. You know, getting crazy is contagious, being calm is contagious, panic is contagious. Mm. All these things, you know, if there's a fire in your plant down there, right? Like we've right. got to have order, we've got to get it done. And, but part of that, because that happens to us all, is communicating. Mm. I mean, it's the one tool that we have to let other people know who may have experience how to help us. It's like, right. I tell my children, I don't know what's going on in your head. Right. 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 And, and, and Gotta so, have that dialogue that, yep. Face yeah. to face. Yep. And so it's just like, well, we'll start a community, you know, who knows there's already been people just with um, autistic children that have bonded because that has its unique challenges. And I mean, they would have not linked up before, hmm. you know, a lot of people obviously losing their businesses and stuff that creates stress. And, and I, I don't have all the great answers, but what I know with regard to the human condition of it all is that we can reduce panic and fear by knowledge, mm. the right knowledge, right? Because it is difficult to sift through some of it right now. Um, given that we are in an election cycle, 
Um, I think it's a lot cleaner now. Um, and that's good. And then it's also then when whatever is causing that to be able to communicate it and feel safe to do it. And so that's what we're trying to do is, um, you know, if we see it, we'll respond. And in that community effort, it's a way for people to come together digitally opposed to, you know, um, in small towns, we do that. We do this all the time in America, but, it's when all of a sudden something like this happens, well, use the tools at your disposal, which is digital technology to yes. do the same thing. And so, yep. Yep. and if there's, you know, and if there's big issues, I literally have a, a, a psychiatrist, you know, and, and he's on there tracking and, and, you know, if we see a topic that becomes really common, um, then I'll throw him on the pod and, and we'll get his advice on it. I mean, That's literally. Great. In any That's normal great. day, you'd, you'd be paying $500 to hear that. Right, right. You know what I mean? That's really good. And that's why I like, uh, that's why I wanted to get you on because I, <clears throat> I think what you're doing is great. So um, let's let's wrap it up here. Cool. Um, can you uh, just give give the folks uh, information how to get, uh, how to find your podcast, your website, and uh, also maybe the uh, the Dark Side of Elite crew where, where they can find all that? Yeah, absolutely. So first place you want to go is just the darksideofelite.com. That's the podcast website. Uh, from there, um, there is a link that will take you to the Facebook group right away to join the community. Um, if you're on Facebook, you would just go search the Dark Side of Elite Crew, and boom, you'll you can join the group, or you don't have to, and uh, you'll be in. Um, and those are the best ways to access that right now. Uh, once we get kind of going back to normal. Um, you know, we'll have the normal interviews, but right now we're trying to do COVID specific stuff. That's hopefully helpful. Um, you know, I'm on all the social platforms, Twitter, Instagram, it's just Riggins underscore Jack. And then, uh, you know, performancemountain.com is the consulting company, but to be honest right now, nobody should be worried about that. Yeah. Everybody right. should That'll, be worried there'll about be a time for that, right? There'll be a time for that. Everybody yeah. should just be worried about social distancing, keep yourself clean, wash your hands. And, you know, if you feel you have the symptoms, call, call a provider that can direct you to where our medical community is. And other than that, you know, just stay together in each way you can. And, and remember, it's all about people and, and, and to communicate because that's the only way that all of us can understand and begin to understand. And oftentimes, as I like to say, I think a lot of us inherently have a lot of the answers. It's just sometimes we need another person to guide us to what we already know. Right, right. And if I can be that for you, I'd love to. But in the same time, that's why it's the crew. Because you know what? Crews, as you know, can be very effective. The collective wisdom of a team is always better than just one person. Yes. Well said. Yes. Well, very good, Jack. Thank you very much for being on the show. I really do appreciate that. And really, everybody who's listening, uh, go to the Dark Side of Elite podcast. Follow that podcast. It's a great one. Get onto Facebook. Find the Dark Side of Elite crew if you want to you know, join in the community talking about COVID and how it's affecting us. So do that because I think it's a great resource. So you get a chance to listen to Jack and his team and what they're talking about. And it can help you get through this time. So I appreciate it, Jack. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks, John. Well, that's it for today. So thank you for listening to Deep Leadership. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and share so we can continue to build a world with better bosses. Until next time, this is John Rennie saying take care and lead well.
Thank you for listening to Deep Leadership. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for all you do. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. For more information and updates, please visit our website at www.deepleadershippodcast.com or johnsrenny.com. Until next time, take care.